And welcome back to another episode of Coaching with the Bible. This is episode 173, season 4, episode 13. We begin the book of Exodus this week with the first portion in the book of Exodus known as Shmot, names, based on the idea that at the beginning of the portion, the names of the tribes and the names of the 70 that came down to Egypt are listed, but also I think because we get the names of key players for the rest of the story in Moses and Pharaoh and actually the name of the people, the people being named as the people of Israel for the first time. Where do we begin this week? What do we want to think about? So what's been on my mind and what's made this difficult over the last number of weeks is that there's too many things sort of swimming through my head at the same time. When we're in these sort of states of flux, when we're in these situations when there is a lot going on that feels like it's completely out of our control or is so much bigger than we are, it can impact negatively the things that we can control and the things that we can do. I remember way back at the beginning of Coaching with the Bible, we talked about that which is within our area of control and that which is not in our area of control. And focusing in those domains. But the reality of it is, is that it's super hard to be able to always zoom in onto the domains and the areas of our lives that we actually do control. And so we get lost and we get, uh, you know, off kilter. We get off or off the path of where we need to go. So we need to sometimes breathe and recalibrate and recoup and get ourselves reorganized so we can actually refocus and do the work that we need to do. As we begin this book for the fourth time together, so there's a question as to where to focus and what to think about and what to talk about here with you for a few minutes this week. And I want you to imagine the following scenario. And to give credit where credit is due, I was stuck this week like I have in the last number of weeks, and the text message from my wife yesterday sort of set me down the right path in this presentation. So if anyone enjoys this presentation at all, it accrues to her, um, I guess, in some level, benefit to the fact that her flight was delayed and getting back home. Uh, we had the chance to you know, communicate through WhatsApp and get sort of this idea here. And I want you to imagine the following. You're born into slavery in Egypt, and it's year 200 of 210 years of slavery. You don't know when that end is, but you're, it's way in there, right? So the period of, of slavery is extensive, it's hundreds of years long. The people of Israel have been down there for a very long period of time. The idea that there is some sort of a redemption coming seems so far in the distance, and you're born into it. I want you to imagine for a moment how you conceive of and think about redemption, if at all. Like, to put it in a slightly different context, when you're in a difficult spot in life and people tell you that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but you're in it, you're sort of mired in it, you're swimming in it, you're steeped in it, you're drowning in it, that light is more than a million miles away. 
it is so far in the distance you basically cannot see it. And effectively, you're relying on the fact that somebody else told you that it's there more than you can actually experience any part of it. It's too far away. And so when I think about and, and, and conceptualize the idea of the people of Israel in Egypt as slaves and the horrors that they're being subjected to on a day-in and day-out basis and the punishments that Pharaoh and his henchmen, for lack of a better term, are imposing upon them year in, year out. I imagine it's bleak. And the sense that there's redemption coming seems almost impossible. And so what I wanted to zoom in here for a minute is on when you see insurmountable odds stacked in front of you, when the path in front of you seems insurmountable, what is the first step that a person needs to take to begin that process of redemption? What has to happen? Is it in your mind? Is it in your soul? Is it in your body? Is it external to you? What do you need to do to sort of get into the space of the redemptive process? Now, redemption doesn't mean just purely spiritual redemption like it is in the case of the Bible. It can be simply just getting out of the difficult situation that you're in into a better space, into a better place. Getting out of a bad relationship into a better relationship. Getting out of a bad work environment into a better work environment where success is more likely to happen. And so in the Bible here, where the people of Israel are in this thing, I wondered, what's that first moment of redemption? When does it happen? And did anybody notice that it happened? Because I think often when we look back at the things that we've come out of, then we're able to see where it all actually started, right? And so we might think it's, you know, quitting, um, but maybe it's before quitting when we had that conversation with a mentor or we spoke to our spouse or we randomly were at a lecture and somebody said something that, you know, clicked the light on in our head and that changed everything. We're able to then see the line of progress towards this moment of redemption. Like That's how we have to think about it. And too often we are not able to sort of square that away or we're not able to really pick it up and see the subtlety of that moment. And so I think a lot of people, when they think about the Bible itself, would say, oh, the redemption begins when Moses is born. Or the redemption begins when Moses goes down to Egypt and confronts the Pharaoh for the first time. And that's a fair assessment of it. And that would be an okay answer because that does appear like when the process starts. When Pharaoh is confronted by a leader of these slave people and then it sort of, you know, the path forward, yes, it takes a year overall, but the path forward sort of, you can mark it in the sand and say, okay, that's the point. But when you look at it and you read the text, that's not it. It's not then. It's actually before then, well before then. 
And it's in a moment of despair and pain and anguish and frustration and anger and hopelessness almost, which is actually where the redemptive process begins for the people of Israel. There's a book that I've quoted a number of times written by the, the rabbi of the Slanim uh, Hasidim. It's called the Netivot Shalom. And he has an article on this week, an essay, where he says that the redemption begins when the people first cry out to God. That's well before Moses coming down to Egypt. That's well before any of the plagues. That's well before it's even obvious anything that there's any sort of redemption happening. So somewhere, I believe it is, it's at the end of the second chapter of the book of Exodus. And in this moment, Pharaoh passes away. Okay, it's in the 23rd verse of the second chapter. The Pharaoh passes away, and the people, the English, one of the English translations is they groan. I don't think that's strong enough language here. The people groan from the work. Let's say that that's what it is. And then they cry out. And their crying out is heard by God. Okay? And then God hears their pain and their suffering and their anguish. God then remembers the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's not get into that one specifically at the moment. And then as the chapter ends, God is described as seeing the people of Israel, and God knows. It doesn't say that God knows the people, it just says that God knows. So what's happening here? This is the beginning of the redemption. This is the deepest, darkest, most difficult, most horrible moment for the people. They just don't realize that that's true. And it's from here where the redemption process begins. Because it's after that, really, when the story of Moses kicks into gear in terms of him being the leader and coming back and so on and so forth. But it's at the deepest, darkest depths of, that, uh, of what would appear to be an insurmountable situation where the action here, again, if you look at the commentaries, we'll describe it as some sort of prayer, some sort of spiritual action. But if you don't want to go there, that's fine. If you simply want to just look at the words as the text is written, it's a sense of anguish and despair and frustration and pain and a cry out. So even though it's not a physical action, it's an action that's taking place of some variety of exasperation of enough from the people. And that's a lot. And that's where it begins. It's at that moment where the Bible says that God knows. Well, what does that mean that God knows? Take it in its simplest form. I'll take it to mean that God knows what they're feeling. God knows the depth of their pain and their suffering more than anybody else would. So the case is, we know this to be true in our own lives, that when someone else is suffering around us, we don't necessarily know how much they're suffering. And sometimes we don't actually see their suffering, but they're suffering. They look great on the outside. On the inside, they're crumbling and falling apart. So here, the Bible says that God knows. So I, on some level, to sort of understand this, how we can understand God in any way, God knows where they're at the point at which they've reached, 
the desperation that they have now hit. That they're basically at the bottom. And then God knows it's time to engage and it's time to interact and it's time to redeem the people. And then from that point, even though it looks like it gets worse for them at certain moments because they take away the bricks and all these other things and it does get harder from the work standpoint, people don't realize that that actually is part of the redemptive process and not prior to the redemptive process. So this is the moment. This is the moment. I think that's super interesting because it's super interesting because in a lot of cases, you don't realize that that's the moment. You don't know that, oh, okay, I'm, 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 I'm on my way back. Like this is the beginning of it. And instead you think this is like still I'm going to go deeper. And the truth is you're not going to go deeper at this point. At this point, you're already on the way back up, which I think is a big deal in my mind. And so when I think about it here, when I think about it with ourselves, so Pluck it out of the Bible for a minute. Put it back into your own lives. Where have you found yourself to be in a situation where the odds were stacked against you? Where it seemed insurmountable? Right? I mean, as I said before, it could be really any, it could be any of these things that, that, that happen in life as to what is insurmountable and what isn't insurmountable. And what does that actually mean? And then what do I do with it? Like, if it's insurmountable, like, there's no, there's no hope. So how do we have to think about it? So the truth is we have to think about it very differently. And the reality of it is, is it takes simply the first step. So I think a couple of years ago, I described Moses' first meeting with Pharaoh. That first meeting is everything. It's the first step. It's the first crack in the glass. It's the first needle that pierces the situation. And so we have to think about life differently. And so I think the first thing we want to think about here is that there's a mental shift that a person has to go through to appreciate overcoming what would appear to be the insurmountable in life. And that is simply just a mind shift or a mindset shift, which gets a person to a place where they can actually begin to think about what the reality of in front of them is. And I do this a lot with people when I'm working one-on-one in coaching, which is I, I, I question whether or not their assumptions of a, circum, of a situation are in fact true and whether they're actually true now. Right? So someone says that they're having a tough time with someone at work or if someone's difficult in their lives, and say, is that true right now? It might have been true, but is it true right now? Is it true the same way that it was true before? Has it shifted in any way? Because once you begin to sort of see shifts and cracks in the armor, then more things are possible. And so I read an article that first thing here is to redefine what does it mean that something is insurmountable? Is it really insurmountable? Is it impossible? Can we redefine impossible? Because if we can redefine impossible and appreciate that what we've set in motion is simply a self-imposed barrier, well, then we've opened up a lot of doors. Because basically what we've said is, well, we, we, we think it's insurmountable, but it's just really, really, really big. 
okay, well, it went from impossible, a brick wall completely from the floor to the ceiling, to being almost to the ceiling with a very small space to get over it, but the possibility of actually getting over that hump. That's a big difference because now it's a question of figuring out strategy. How do I get over that? So redefining impossible, that mindset shift on what is or isn't insurmountable, super important. Number two is also perhaps looking at the situation and thinking about the fact that what is insurmountable might simply just be completely imaginary. Here's a great quote from someone by the name of Barbara Shear. Imaginary obstacles are insurmountable. Real ones aren't. But you can't tell the difference when you have no real information. Fear can create even more imaginary obstacles than ignorance can. That's why the smallest step away from speculation and into reality can be an amazing relief. The reality solution means do it before you're ready. In other words, the same way that the people started to cry out, that's sort of their first step into it, or you taking you know, leave for a day from work one, so that you can break a sort of a... a, a, a sort of a pattern of, of behavior and action and interaction to reset and refocus your mind gives you that first crack in the armor, gives you the realization that it's not impossible, that it's possible, but maybe very difficult, and it's not insurmountable. Insurmountable is imaginary, is illusory. Reality is possible, and these things are possible. Super important when we think about how we want to go about these things. So that's the first step in this process, is simply redefining what's impossible. Number two, related to that, is if there's a person that's sort of in the way there, I think this is a really interesting thing to do. If someone's in the way that's sort of making things in life insurmountable, and they play a role in that story. So I read about the idea of insurmountable situations of setting it free. Words, what we do is we put, a, put on the baggage and we wear it and we hold it and we carry the weight of it for years and years and years. And then it always maintains that level of power over us, even if it's sort of actually insignificant or meaningless. And so sometimes you have a relationship with somebody, it's a, it's a negative relationship, but it's holding you back. And it's making what's on the other side of the insurmountable impossible to even consider. If we set that person free, and appreciate that that was true of that person five years ago, eight years ago, 10 years ago, it's not true of them now, then we allow ourselves to get past them. And we also allow that person to play a different role in our story. So in the Bible, as an example, Pharaoh is the adversary. Pharaoh is the enemy. But when we set Pharaoh free, he also becomes the vehicle by which the redemption is possible. The vehicle by which God shows in the world. The vehicle that thereby shows that freedom and independence can overcome power. Like, that's an interesting shift in how we think about it. So Pharaoh becomes a muse or a foil more than he becomes an enemy, an adversary. And so setting the person free or setting the situation free allows us to get hold and actually to regain power in the situation. That's two. So first again is redefining what's impossible. Number two is setting the people in those stories free. What I think is really important then in a practical standpoint is now not biting off some gigantic piece of the story right off. That doesn't work. It's a small step or even no step at all. 
case of the people in the Bible, it's it's an emotion. It's it's not even words. It's simply just letting out that groan, letting out that cry, letting out that frustration in some sort of, you know, the term that I heard recently in an article, a voice with no words. Very powerful. It's an amazing release. But it's the first action. It's not everything. It's not going and conquering the land immediately. It's what do I have to do first? What can I show first that gives me then confidence that I can go second, I can do third, I can do fourth? How do I progress forward? So it's a three-step process, I think really important. First, again, is resetting what is or isn't impossible. Number two is setting things in the story free so that you can reimagine what's possible with them. You can reimagine the role that they have and you can release the power that they currently have over you. And number three is that very concrete step forward. The fourth thing and the last one for today is not doing it alone. When you feel like something around you is insurmountable, yes, you have to do the work and you have to do the work on your own. That's true. And you have to put in time and effort to get over that hump. Absolutely. But to assume the ability to just sort of overcome it by yourself, which is great for books and stories and podcasts and TED Talks, but like most people, that doesn't work. It needs help. It needs a team. It needs support to really actually get there. And the mixture of you and the other person or persons working with you to get you there, that's not weakness, that's strength. And that's you focusing on the bigger picture and the bigger gain and the bigger goal. That's a much better approach. And so those are the four things I would think about when we're thinking about the idea of things that are insurmountable in life. Those are the four that I would go with. Those are the four that I would think about. And that's how I would sort of begin the the process of overcoming some sort of insurmountable goal in our lives. Something that seems so far away, so distant, so impossible, so, so not in the realm of reality, which can actually become reality. And so to end, let's end with a quote. Here's a quote from Carlos Santana, of all people. But I think it's actually a really good quote. I think it relates really nicely here. When you play from the heart, all of a sudden there's no gravity. You don't feel the weight of the world, of bills, of anything. That's why people love it. Your so-called insurmountable problems disappear. And instead of problems, you get possibilities. That is Coaching with the Bible for this week. Look forward to seeing you next week. Have a great, great week, a blessed week, a happy week, a healthy week, and an incredibly successful week.